0: I thought I'd start today with the questions that you put on the board um, related to questions about the talk yesterday. And the first one um, I'd like to talk about is when I started the talk last night, um, I began by um, framing the Context in which I was talking about the process of perception, and that there are five processes that the Buddha talked about as being mm, processes of body and mind that um, that function, and around which we tend to cling. We tend to create a self, and uh, I believe that's what this first question I'm going to be talking about is is questioning. Mm-hmm. Is as asking for some elaboration about those five um, processes. Um, just to clarify, um, these these five processes um, are not uh, are not um, the the question said how these these how these five processes stimulate papancha. And the, the process of perception that I talked about yesterday is the one that really moves off towards Papancha. Um, the others are related more generally to this process of me, mine, I, <laughs> uh, having, wanting. Um, and the uh, the process of Papancha is uh, more related, that process of um, creating objects is more related around the particular um uh, aggregate is the term uh, translation of the term for these five processes so these five processes the the um, they basically represent the 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 whole terrain in which we experience our life that the, that our life is basically comprised of these various processes and i'll just name them again there's the process of of body and that's a huge one there's a lot a lot there the process of feeling the way that we experience things as being pleasant unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant the process of perception, that I talked about a lot last night, the process of um, volitional, intentional activities of mind, and the process of knowing or consciousness. So these, uh, the Buddha talked about these in particular, he said, you know, these are really helpful processes to get to know, to understand, because we tend to congeal around these processes we tend to pick them up and make them me or who i am and so the more we can understand them as natural unfolding processes i, I think um one day one day one of the questions somebody was asking was about a tree you know how a tree knows how to grow um you know that that uh um, you know, the tree knows how to thicken itself here so that it can support the branches there and it knows to reach towards the sun and the light. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's not that there's a, a a being in that tree deciding what to do, but there are processes at work that that, that, that tree embodies. Growth processes, uh, processes of sustenance, uh, moisture, um, related to light they're just the natural processes of that tree growing and there's no uh, being in there saying oh look what a good tree I am you know I've done the best job of all the trees here spreading my branches and I've got the most beautiful branches you know that's not what goes on but we have in our um Experience. We've got these natural processes that happen around our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our um, ideas, our uh, intentional, um, volitional activities of mind and our consciousness. And what tends to happen is we do pick them up and say, Oh, look at me. I'm the best meditator here. I can sit longer and quieter than anyone. Or look at me i 'm the most miserable person in the world we pick We pick these things up and almost like after the fact create uh, create this sense of identity around these processes. but these processes are just natural processes, much that a tree kind of has natural processes of growth so in the um in the texts, these five aggregates. And this term aggregate, you know, that term, it's translating the Pali term kanda. And that that term, um, you know, I don't know why they picked aggregate. Oh, it, It's not a bad translation, actually, when I think about it, um, when I think about what aggregate is. But the Pali means something more, you know, Every day, I mean, we don't go around talking about aggregate much in our everyday language, but this term "kanda" was much more an everyday kind of term. It basically means group or heap, something like that—a heap of stuff. And um, I like—I mean, aggregate's kind of interesting in a way because when I think about like aggregate rock, you know, what is an aggregate rock? It's a rock made of other rocks. So uh, these, these, um, heaps, I mean, like the, the heap, the heaps are stuff made of other stuff. So just briefly to review these, uh, five, just a little bit, I could do easily five talks on this, (laughs) um and i did one last night you know i did one last night on perception so the body i mean one of oh, one of the other pieces i'll just say about the aggregates in general that the buddha talked about these both as so these the processes or the kind of let's say laws almost laws and just the 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 processes by which our human beingness happens so they they are they describe the processes by which we feel, um, perceive, know, experience the body, and intend. So it, it's it's related to the processes, but it's also uh, used to describe the results of those processes. So you know the process of um, a feeling. The feeling of whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's a process by which that's um, done, experienced. And then there's the result of that process, which is an experience of something being pleasant, something being unpleasant, something being neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And likewise with... um, with perception you know there's the process of perception which i talked a lot about yesterday and then there is the result which is the perception itself it is the hearing of a sound and then the mind recognizing it as air conditioning so that that's that's the 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 result we also we we also um talk about these um heaps, bundles, as being the result of the process as well. And this is actually one of the avenues into exploring these, the processes. We look at the result of the processes, so we can look at when things are pleasant, when things are unpleasant, when things are neutral, and begin to understand the, the, something about the process by which that happens. So just to be clear about that, it both refers to the process as well as the result of each of those processes. So the body, I talked about the body quite a few days ago, just the um, uh, you know, touch sense, and uh, it's described as what is affected by the world in terms of process. The the Pali says something like... Um, I mean, the, the, the translation of the Pali says something like it deforms. That's why it's called form. That we uh, experience impingement on it. That the impinging aspect is the process nature. And then we, we will experience hardness, softness, coolness, heat, tension tightness, tingling, vibration all those elemental experiences that we explored the other day and again the recognition that these uh, you know these elemental experiences are uh, helpful for us to touch into because it helps us to distinguish the actual experience from our ideas about the experience so hand for instance you know we we um we don't experience hand. We experience vibration, pulsing, tingling, pressure, stiffness, coolness. That's the actual experience. But we and kind of think about it as hand, and it it uh, you know, we we remove ourselves from the actual experience, and so this is the exploration of body. Within the uh, these five aggregates, these five processes, there's this bodily process, and then there are four mental processes, and I like this um, this aspect of the teaching in some ways because it to me gives a kind of an interesting counterpoint to the exploration of our six senses the five physical senses that we have and then our sixth sense of the mind receiving thoughts and emotions all of our senses receive experience Eye uh, receives sight ear receives sound tongue receives taste mind receives emotion mind receives thought the uh the six sense spaces you know five of the six sense spaces have to do with the body and so it kind of emphasizes the physical realm of experience and then one of the six sense spaces has to do with the mind and in this teaching on the aggregates it's it's reversed and so the emphasis is more on exploring how the mind works so it's particularly interesting for us in this retreat because we are exploring the mind And so getting familiar with these processes that are at work in the mind is part of our exploration here. So, um, feeling. Feeling, whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There's there's feeling that happens related to bodily experience. There's feeling that happens related to experience in our mind. Both of these are understood to be part of the mental process of feeling. So one, one um, you know, that's a little confusing perhaps about bodily feeling, how that's understood to be mental. But I'll give a, a brief example maybe that will give a sense of this. Um, if you're standing on a busy street corner, and you're waiting for a friend. There's a lot of people walking around you, and um, you don't see your friend right away. And then um, right around the appointed time, you feel somebody touch your shoulder. And, you know, that may be experienced as pleasant because there's the sense or you know the 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 uh acknowledgement that maybe you know this is your friend touching that's what that's what the expectation is your mind is in the situation of expecting your friend you feel this contact you you're expecting your friend and you feel that as as pleasant then imagine you're on the same street corner same busy time um but you're not expecting anybody. And you feel this contact on your shoulder. That might be experienced as unpleasant. Because, you know, like, fear might arise. Why is somebody touching me? Um, So this process of feeling, much as perception, is very influenced by our ideas, our expectations, our agendas, our thoughts, our emotions. So this is a way in which that uh, we can understand perhaps that the physical contact is, uh, um, the, the, the feeling around our physical contact is a mental phenomenon. And then there's perception, which I talked about quite a bit last night, so I won't review that. And um, the fourth aggregate is volitional formation. That's worth maybe spending a little bit of time with this one because this is a big, big heap. It's a big bundle. Um, It basically comprises all the many activities of mind that have some form of intention behind them. Um this includes emotions, thoughts, many states of mind such as concentration, joy, happiness, uh, loving kindness, mindfulness itself fits in this category: peace, anger, irritation, boredom. Much of what happens in our mind falls into this category of. Volitional formation. The the key here about the volition, I mean, the volition here, it's really helpful and important to distinguish uh, volition in terms of uh, a force that is creating, hmm, shaping, forming other things versus our kind of conscious. I mean, when I say volition, usually that conjures up the notion of uh, being consciously aware or consciously choosing something. And this volitional formation category is not necessarily those things we're consciously engaging in, but very much the whole set of things that bubbles up from our subconscious. I think I've said a number of times that when we're not mindful, aware, our habits, our patterns are choosing for us. So whatever we've practiced a lot in the past, if we've happened to practice a lot of frustration in the past, that tends to come up again. um, That frustration, that Um, arising of that has a kind of a formative power to it. Just because it came up without our conscious intention, our consciously saying, yes, oh, I want to get frustrated. Most of the time that's not what happens, right? We don't just go around saying, oh, let me get frustrated now. Oh, let me get angry now. It just, it comes up. It, It bubbles up. But that uh, the fact that we didn't consciously choose it doesn't change the fact that the that process has a formative power to it. And we all know this in, in a way. You know, when anger comes up, we see it impact our experience. For example, you know, um, oh, well, let me just step back for a second, um, so this um, volitional formation or intentional formation is understood as being that which shapes our experience, that which puts together our experience. So this process of the volitional, intentional, and intentional here not necessarily being consciously intentional, but the uh, um, things that have a, a a momentum to them they have a kind of a it's like they're they're launched and when they're launched there's there's going to be ramifications of them these this aspect of our mind this set of processes of our mind creates shapes all of the aggregates so it's a really uh, important set of processes to to get familiar with because this is where our life either heads towards struggle, unsatisfactoriness, despair, confusion, or our life heads towards more peace, happiness, ease, well-being. It's these processes that determine which direction we go. So just back to that example around anger. How does anger shape the other of these processes? When we get angry, it shapes our body. Perhaps our face gets distorted. And When when there's anger, it comes out in our face often. So that's a way in which this volitional uh, process or this Sometimes it's called mental formation. Let's call it mental formation. The formative aspect of it is really kind of the the key piece that I want to point to here. So when there's anger arising, it forms things in our body. It may create tension or tightness in our body. Our hands may clench, our body may feel hot, and a pressure may be formed in our body. So... It distorts our face, creates heat, creates pressure, so the body responds. What happens to our feelings when anger arises? They usually become unpleasant. So this process, this process that's been set into play, whether consciously or subconsciously, tends to create the terrain of unpleasant experience. We then perceive things through the lens of that formation. Perceive things through the lens of that anger. We tend to take in things that confirm our own view, may not see things that don't confirm our view. Our consciousness is also directed by these filters. Again, you know, the... um, Let me step back to perception. I think I actually was—I I spoke more about how consciousness takes things in when I gave that example. Um, so, with perception, when we're angry, for instance, we we may perceive things as, you know, as somebody coming into, um, coming up to us, as being an attack. You know that if we're if we're in a state of of anger, perhaps we're perceiving things attacking us or perceiving um, things as being not easy to to accomplish, things not easy to do or something like that, then consciousness is more that aspect uh, that, that that anger would shape our consciousness in terms of what we become conscious of and what we don't become conscious of. So, when a filter is in place, there are certain things that we may uh, take in, and other things that we may not see at all. This is something that's hard for us to grasp, actually, that um, we we take our processes of body and mind as being kind of accurate recorders of experience, and... Uh, it's just not true, actually. <laughs> you know, we we can completely miss things when we have a certain filter, a certain, either an emotional filter or some kind of an agenda. We can completely miss certain things. I have to give this example. Many of you have heard it a number of times at this point, but... It is so helpful in terms of seeing how this works, this process of having a filter and seeing that consciousness may take some things in and not others. So there's a, there was a study done on um, what's called selective attention, and this is a, the psychological term around uh, this process of our consciousness taking some things in and not other things in. And the study was that the um, people came into the psychology lab and watched this video, and they were asked while watching this video their task, their um, agenda their you know what they told they want wanted were, were wanted to do was to, see, to, to watch this video, and it was going to be a video of people playing with the basketball, and to watch how many times the basketball passed between the people in the white shirt. So they watched the video, and by and large, people could answer that question with accuracy. A, a few people in this study would ask or say, "Was there like was there like a gorilla in that video?" And indeed, there had been uh, a guy in a gorilla suit that walked out into the middle of the people playing with the basketball, stood there for a few minutes, you know, kind of pounding his chest and and then walked out. Um, the vast majority of the people did not see the gorilla, and in fact, even when they replayed the video, and this is actually the more, um, what's the right word, humbling, the more humbling piece, to see that, I mean, we're all giggling, but it it, it would happen for us too, <laughs> um, the kind of scarier piece or more humbling piece is that when people were shown the video, you know, that gorilla is really obvious. When you're looking for, or when you you know that it's there, it is like, you cannot miss the gorilla. People said, that's not the same video. (laughs) Because we so trust our experience as being representative, accurate reflection of reality. So this is a very simple example. Simple agenda. Count the number of basketball passes, you know? Just imagine how many agendas we're operating with in our life and how much we are probably missing. This is this is how these filters, these So anger, for instance, if we have anger coming up, anger forms our consciousness by having us take in certain things and not other things. And this uh, process of uh, volitional formation, of mental formation, also tends to construct other volitional formations. Anger tends to construct more anger. So this is a very important process to understand. Then there's the process of consciousness, which is the, the meeting at the sense space of experience. And as we've just seen, this consciousness is not necessarily just a photographic representation of what's out there. So these five processes are happening all the time. They're basically the processes at work in our being. Kind of like the processes that work that grow a tree. These are the processes at work in our lives. They're happening all the time. We are perceiving, we are knowing, we are... Intending whether or not we're consciously aware these processes are happening. This is um sometimes Saida Utejania says, you know, you know, suppose you um uh You know, you met somebody on the street and, you know, having a conversation, you know, not particularly mindful and, you know, you introduced to this person and learn their name and and then, you know, you uh, leave that situation and then suddenly it's like, wow, wait a minute, I've been lost in thought. I've not been really particularly mindful. But you remember the interchange. It's not like the lack of mindfulness means that memory, perception, consciousness is not happening. So mindfulness, I think of mindfulness as a kind of a special mental formation. Mindfulness fits into this category of something that shapes experience. And this is something I've been encouraging you to recognize. How is it for you when mindfulness happens? How does that impact your experience? It shapes our experience in a certain way. Often it helps give us a little bit of ease or more... um, Uh, kind of a little bit of perspective around what's happening for mindfulness to be there. So mindfulness um, does shape our experience. It's one of these volitional formations. But it's kind of a special um, formation in a way because it's purpose. I think the purpose of mindfulness is essentially to reflect whatever's happening in our experience. And so the purpose of mindfulness is to reflect these processes and the results of these processes that are happening. The five aggregates are always happening, whether we're aware or not, whether we're mindful or not. When mindfulness arises, it's like we're waking up into these processes that are already going on. There's already something happening when we become mindful. And it's been helpful for me to kind of reflect on that. There's something already here. I don't have to create something. There's plenty going on already. So mindfulness arises. What is it arising? What is it reflecting in this moment? Processes of body and mind. Then, I think I'll just end this part with a little tiny bit about this this basically can launch into a whole another talk. <laughs> um, how do we how does the selfing happen around these five processes? And I'm just going to say a little bit about that. and to do this, um, I'd like to use something that uh, Bhikkhu Analio has said about these processes with respect to Our notion of self, just to give you a flavor of how kind of fundamental these processes are to our sense of who we are. So he says, body is where I am. Feelings are how I am. Perception is what I'm Recognizing volitional mental formations are why I'm acting. And consciousness is whereby I am experiencing. And so we we impute the where I am, how I am, but the the I part of it comes in later. It's like that tree, you know, that that the processes are just happening, (coughs) but we, uh, this process of selfing is just yet another mental formation. And this process then creates a sense of self out of these, this raw experience that's happening. Oh, I'm doing this great thing. Or I'm doing this miserable thing. Then um, slightly related to this... Um, Around, particularly around intentionality. Um, another question somebody asked around um, are what we trying to do is to stop doing? <laughs> are we trying to stop doing things? And the, the, the question goes on to say it's, it feels like these thoughts, um, the self narrative processes, feel like they're involving some kind of activity, and it feels like a doing. It is a doing. It may or may not be a conscious doing, as I was just pointing to around volitional formations. Thinking is a doing in the mind. Emotion is a doing in the mind. Um, it, It may not be, as I said, it may not be something that we've decided to do. It's a happening. It's a it's a process that's unfolding based on conditions, but it is an activity. It's an unfolding of activity that shapes, that forms what's going to happen. So when I talk about um, settling back and just watching, what I'm talking about is watching the activity, the doing that is um kind of unfolding as a result of previous choices. So to look at is it possible to um uh, or just playing with and actually I, I don't suggest so much to stop doing, but to notice when doing is happening. When is it when is the mind, as I've been saying, when is the mind consciously involved in doing? And when is the mind simply observing the doings that are going on. And then a couple of questions around kind of the uh, the conditioned nature of perception, the fact that you know, I talked about perception being mistaken some of the time, and this process of papancha feeding back on perception and essentially coloring um, our further perceptions you know, that uh, when um, I gave the example of the bed bugs, you know like uh, there was an itch, and then the mind um, recognized the itch so there was the perception of itch and then it started thinking about the itch about oh maybe I got a mosquito bite no wait it's not in a place where it might be a mosquito bite oh bed bugs maybe it's a bed bug and oh I've had bed bugs oh that's a problem oh I've got to figure out what to do about that and then um, seeing that uh, what comes in what we perceive is interpreted through that that lens so in my own experience, with this very question, any little twinge on my body was like, oh, is that a bed bug bite? Is that a bed bug bite? No, it's just a little twinge on the body. Those happen. So the, the, the process of um, perception tends to be uh, mistaken and tends to be very prone to these filters that we have. Filters of anger, filters of Happiness, filters of confusion, how we perceive things is very prone to those filters. And so a couple of questions about that, you know, um, how, do we, um, how do we, you know, know that we're not acting erroneously? Essentially, how can we step out of this cycle? If our perceptions are mistaken, how do we ever correct the mistake? Um, Partly, this unwinding of this happens by understanding and beginning to experience in our own lives that our perception does make mistakes. We we see that uh, another example from my own practice. Um, I was in Burma, and um, um, every evening I was doing my meditation in my room, and my room happened to be pretty near the uh, wall of the monastery. And uh, sounds would come over the wall from the nearby village. You know, sounds of the radio or the you know the the local tea bar where there's a a loud radio blasting or, you know, sounds of the people or sounds of activity. So they would, like, come over and I would do a lot of hearing, a lot of hearing practice. And every evening about the same time there'd be the squealing sound and um, my attention I, I recognized that squealing sound, and my mind labeled that, perceived it, what my mind perceived it as was pig, and it was a pig squealing. So that was the perception, and, you know, that was kind of, you know, that, the sound, the, the mind had heard sounds like that, and pigs had been there, making the sound. It's like, this was the, this was the map that my mind made. That sound means Pig. Now, the uh, the mind also, I knew this part was, was um, construction, but to me it sounded like that squealing was distressed. And I created this idea that uh, the squealing was coming from a local butcher shop and about every evening at that time the pig was being slaughtered for the next day. So I knew this was... I, I knew that I did not know that this was true. But still that was that was what was happening. You know, that was that was what my mind formed. And um you know, the result of that was that I felt compassion for these pigs. And then a couple of days later, I mean this happened many days, but one evening for some reason I was doing walking meditation at night instead of um staying in my room, and um I was walking, and I saw these like flying creatures like swooping, and they were um, bats. They were squealing. So the perception of pig had been completely off. you know it wasn't pig. not only was you know weren't there, you know pigs being slaughtered, there weren't even any pigs. So the mind, I mean, one of the interesting things there was the recognition of, wow, you know, that perception had completely informed my response. You know, this big open-hearted feeling of compassion, you know. That vanished too. (laughs) 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 Um, So we see, we begin to learn just how prone to error our perceptions are. And so we... uh, we, ta- we learn that we need to take them lightly, and we learn to correct rather than to hold on. The, um, the, um, the Buddha talked about kind of levels of the confusion around perception, and the, um, um, the deepest is that we form a view around our perceptions and believe. This is essentially, I think, where the papancha comes in. We believe the reality of that view. So that would be akin to my um, having created a view that that was a pig and that pig was being slaughtered. And even seeing the bats and hearing the bats squealing wouldn't dislodge that, uh, that view. There's sometimes that we that we're so entrenched in our views that that we cannot see evidence to the contrary. When we begin to hear these kinds of teachings, it begins to undermine our uh, kind of belief in the solidity of our views, and it does begin to help us to hold our perceptions more lightly. So it's kind of, you know, it's a slow winding out of our um, delusion. We know, we we take in the information and we know that this process of um, papancha, the process of reifying, of solidifying, tends to happen. And so we may begin to to be able to be a little looser around those, slowly over time. And then we also um, begin to recognize when we are making assumptions. You know, we take something in. Um, you know, I did recognize that that was an assumption about the slaughterhouse. I did not recognize that that perception. I mean, it, it was it was mind blowing to me when I when that perception was popped the bubble of that perception was popped it's like wow it's not even pigs so you know it's kind of a slow unwinding of this you know we'll see what we see at times we'll recognize just like that example at times we'll recognize wow that perception was completely off <laughs> at times we'll we'll recognize that um at other times it will be way after the fact and we see wow i i had a completely different perspective on that so we just have to we have to be kind of uh, easy on ourselves around just how prone our minds are to being caught in delusion in confusion in beliefs ideas agendas and to recognizing that that's part of how our minds work, we begin to hold our ideas a little more lightly. And that helps us to step out, move out from that, um, being caught by those confusions. And a couple of questions um, from the other day. Um, The first one is... um, I'll read the question. What is your understanding of the four powers, their practical application, and how they fit in with this awareness practice? So the four powers are my understanding of the, this, the Buddha was a great list maker, you know, he he had lists for everything. Um, So this was a set of, this is a set of functions of mind, um, set of processes of mind, and uh, that tend to, uh, that are supports for, what are called the spiritual powers. Um, The spiritual powers, there's a number of them listed in the suttas. They're things like um, being able to read minds, being able to walk on water, being able to um, hear things at a distance, basically psychic powers, plus... um, the other power that it's said to support is the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion. So these, these psychic powers, and this is, I think, possibly, I'm, I'm not sure of this, I don't know all of the history of these various lists and whatnot, but this one strikes me because the Buddha often talked about these psychic powers as being a kind of a, uh, a place we can get lost Kind of a, a whirlpool in which we can get lost, get infatuated with the possibility of being able to read minds, or um, you know, hear and see things from a distance, or multiply your body so you can be more places than one at a time, or you know, um, and get enthralled with that idea and lose sight of the of the the goal, uh, what the Buddha called the goal of the holy life—to free ourselves from these. Potent forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so I wonder—I don't know—but this sounds like it's kind of one of these lists. Um, if this was a list that was kind of around at the time of the Buddha, these psychic powers were were cultivated and, um, you know, apparently well understood at the time of the Buddha. Um, Generally, they require a very concentrated mind. You, you become very concentrated, and that, that's the place from which these psychic powers become accessible. And I think perhaps the Buddha um, took this list from the time of India, that, that, that this was a kind of a set of four qualities that were you know, cultivated in his day to cultivate these psychic powers, But then he added this other special power, special spiritual power, which is the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion, and said this is the one that's most important. This spiritual power is the one that's most important. And these four qualities will help us in that regard. So use it for that purpose as opposed to for cultivating these um, psychic powers. That's my understanding of how the Buddha held um, this cultivation of the powers, that these powers, uh, the the cultivation of of these qualities is a support for a concentrated mind which will help to lead towards freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion. And so these four supports for a concentrated mind are uh, desire, the poly term is chanda, the there's a, that kind of, to me, indicates that there has to be a kind of a... The heart has to direct towards, it has to incline towards, it has to wish for a settledness. You know, we're not probably going to find settledness without some um, movement in that direction, almost kind of related to intention. That we have to wish for that concentration. So... It's a it's a directing the desire directed towards um, concent- a concentrated mind. The second is energy. Is a support for the concentrated mind. The third is the mind itself. Is a support for the concentrated mind. And the fourth is investigation. Is a support for the concentrated mind. And I think in this practice. The kind of concentration that we are cultivating is not the one-pointed concentration, but the concentration of stability of mind, the concentration of the mind that is non-reactive, the concentration of the mind that can be with everything that happens without pulling back from unpleasant and leaping on to things that are pleasant and trying to hold on to them. You know, not that pushing and pulling around experience, but just... The concentration is just that stability of mind to be non-reactive. These four aspects, four qualities, support us in that work. I've been encouraging this um, interest in a way, the interest, the invest- investigation. When I, in, in a way, I think the interest... Maybe, maybe we could talk about interest as being the uh, kind of where desire is. You know, that, that um, are we cultivating an interest in being aware? It's like we're cultivating that inclination towards it. We're cultivating investigation, looking at what's happening. Investigation just simply being the recognition of what's happening moment after moment. We're cultivating the, the energy. Of meeting each moment, and the mind well we're looking at the mind, the mind um, I think in this context, the mind uh, this is a support for concentration is understanding that when the mind is um, directed towards the wholesome. directed towards the, at least in our context, when the mind is directed towards the wholesome, it will support the stability of mind. So these four, um, we've been using these four aspects in our practice. I haven't just, I I just haven't used this particular framework. It's not a framework I use very much. Um, it, it, uh, It seems to be less discussed in the Theravada tradition as a whole um, at least in the western thread of the Theravada tradition these these um, don't seem to have as much um, airtime as some of the other lists do and then kind of kind of almost jumping off of that. Um, Looking at energy and effort. Um, Energy is cultivated by um, making effort. And the kind of effort we're making here is really a gentle, persistent, "Hmm, meet the experience, meet the experience, meet the experience. And this raises the question, the question, this last question that I'll address about the Buddha's teaching on the Four Right Efforts and how that uh, fits in with what we're doing here. The Four Right Efforts, the Buddha um, says, are cultivating, maintaining wholesome states and abandoning and... um, I like the word... Protecting ourselves from unwholesome states. This sounds like, um, and it is. It can be can be practiced as an activity. So, for instance, cultivating metta. We can do that by um, practicing metta, as we are in the evening. You know, consciously bringing that into our minds and encouraging, inclining the mind in that direction. So as a doing, we can engage with these right efforts. We can actively cultivate wholesome states. We can actively, when they're present, uh, work at maintaining them. We can actively um, look at uh, how we let go of unwholesome states, bring in some of our tools, our techniques to set things aside, let go. And we can actively um, protect ourselves from unwholesome states by, um, again, maybe by by turning our mind towards in a different direction. So these can be active. These can be active processes of mind. And then when we hear the teaching, settle back and just notice what's happening as it's happening. Like well how does this teaching on right effort come in you know what what what's their connection? what's the relationship between them and what happens what what um mindfulness itself what I see is that mindfulness itself when we are mindful in this way that we're practicing here, the four right efforts are are a kind of automatically happening because um just as an example, um, as we bring mindfulness to our experience, if we bring mindfulness to some difficult state, for example, we bring mindfulness to the arising of frustration. We see, see it for what it is. Bringing that attention to that uh Experience helps us to understand it, and then, as I talked about on the talk, one of the early nights, the understanding leads to the abandoning of that. We we recognize that frustration, and just the sometimes, sometimes it happens that just the seeing of it, it lets go on its own. We don't have to try to let it go. We don't have to push it away. So that, uh, and and also the um, the. The mindfulness helps cultivate the understanding around that difficult state, which leads to the abandoning if it doesn't abandon, you know, just upon the seeing of it. We understand it as a not helpful state of mind. We see how we're suffering in the experience of that. So we understand, we begin to understand how it's put together, we begin to understand its um, uh, suffering nature. So the mind begins to let it go. So that's how abandoning works with the mindfulness. The protecting, you know, if we are aware, mindful, we begin to see this, the, 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 like the, that example I gave the other day of seeing the mind inclining towards anger, that that thought arose in my mind, and the mind was just like, yeah, let's jump on that thought and think more thoughts to get angry, but it saw that, it was mindful, and the mind just didn't go there. The mindfulness protected, protected itself from the arising of anger. So that was a very natural thing. Just the mindfulness created that protection. In that observing of a difficult state, for instance, just we are in that same time. Not only are we uh, abandoning the difficult state or it's heading in that direction of the abandoning, we're protecting ourselves from the future arising of the unwholesome states we are cultivating mindfulness we are cultivating stability of mind in that very activity we are cultivating the wholesome and as mindfulness arises the in, the in, the effort to be with it maintains that wholesome state so the mindfulness itself incorporates The four right efforts. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only way to work with the four right efforts, but we don't have to um, feel like we're not engaging in them when we're practicing mindfulness, because the mindfulness is bringing them along. It's kind of automatic in a way. When we have wise view in terms of looking at what's creating suffering, what's creating affliction. We understand that's not helpful, let go of that. What's supporting us to move towards happiness? We, we encourage the cultivation of that, or the mindfulness begins to encourage the cultivation of the wholesome. It encourages the abandoning of the unwholesome. The wise view and the mindfulness together really bring the four right efforts into this practice. Those two pieces together bring the four right efforts into this practice. So, just moving into silence, letting go of the words. just being with what's happening right now that very simple process of just knowing this moment mindfulness reflecting what's already happening No need to change it. No need to try to create something. Just this. And watching what happens to your mind and body as you're aware. Awareness impacts us in a very helpful way. And so again, I encourage you to keep sitting as long as it feels appropriate for you.